welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Luke chapter 3 and 24 today. You can go ahead and start uh, turning there. Well, today ends what many Christians call Holy Week. Holy Week is the week leading up to the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ as He comes back from the grave. And throughout this week, we just take time to remember yearly the events that happened leading up to that week because it is a crazy ride. One week ago, starting on Sunday, is what we call Palm Sunday. This is the day when Jesus, for the first time, publicly announces Himself as the King of Kings, as the Messiah of the world. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, showing his people that he comes as a, as a king of peace. And people go out before him, and they wave their palm branches, and they cry, Hosanna, which means save me. And they look to Jesus Christ as the king. Now, if all you knew about the Easter story, if all you knew about Holy Week was that, that would probably lead you to believe that Jesus rides in, he finds a throne, he sits on it, and he rules. But the rest of the week is just crazy with the things that happens. And instead of going and sitting on a throne, what we see is a bizarre set of events where Jesus is later arrested for crimes he did not commit. He, he is tried before men, though he is God. He is tried before these, these earthly judges who, by the way, find him innocent and then sentence him to death anyway. And from there, he is beaten harshly. He drags his cross to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, and, and they put him in between two low-life criminals that are being executed for crimes. That's a major change for one week. And that's where we pick up the story this morning, Jesus giving his life on the cross, having been beaten savagely for us. Read with me as we start through this story in Luke chapter 23. We're going to read verses 44 through 49. And it was about the sixth hour, this is on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into my hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. And when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts in return. And all his acquaintances and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to that. That section of verses right there is the moment that history changed. And let's be honest, this is Easter Sunday. Many of you have been to church on an Easter Sunday. Many of you come to church primarily on Easter Sunday. And you've heard the story again and again and again. And you come here knowing what story you're going to hear. And I fear this for Christians. I fear that what Jesus just did on the cross, what this scripture records, becomes kind of jaded for us. I, I fear that we begin to hear it and we want to hear it nod our heads like it's a good storybook story that we read to our kids on, sun, on, on the evening before they go to bed. But this is the moment everything changed. This is the moment it changed for me and for you. This is the reason we can sit here as followers of Christ and call ourselves children of God because of what Jesus Christ did here. Amen. Everything changes. 
And so I want to just take a second to look at the magnitude of what's going on here. On your take-home truths, number one, it says that Jesus' crucifixion, point A, is creation response. If you want to know how big of an event is, you need to look at what happens as a result of that event. At the moment of Jesus' death, creation responds to his death. Now, we've seen with Jesus that he has a relationship with creation that, that is different than the rest of us. Jesus has the ability in the midst of a storm to talk to the weather and it obeys him. Jesus has the ability with a word or with a touch to, to heal creation, you and me, to heal physical harmful things. It's just a word. It just happens like that. Last week on Palm Sunday, Jesus was reprimanded by the Pharisees. They said, quit telling or tell your disciples to quit calling you the Messiah. And Jesus said this, it's like they can quit saying it, but when they do, the rocks will start crying out that I'm the Messiah. Jesus has this amazing relationship with creation as the creator of creation. And if you look at this, what's interesting is that at the moment of his death, the universe no longer functions properly. Now, I've heard some people say, and I've read a few times, that, that maybe creation has a consciousness and it's just responding to Jesus and it, and it calls out in pain. Creation does not have a consciousness. That's, that's not anything that the Bible would teach us. Simply put this way, is the magnitude of this event is marked by God, by the universe just quitting to work for, or quit working for a few minutes. Look at what the Bible says. It says, number one, for three hours, darkness fell over the earth. For three hours, the, earth, or the sun did not shine. And that's not just in the place where Jesus was. That's the entire earth. And scientists have tried to explain this. Like, how does it just become dark all of a sudden? What happened that there was just darkness? And, and people have said, well, maybe it was an eclipse. But it couldn't have been an eclipse because Passover, when this happened, was always held at a full moon. Eclipses can't happen during a full moon. People have said, well, maybe it was cloudy, but it doesn't say that a storm blew up. It says that the sun quit shining. This is a physical reminder of what God has given us. A physical reminder of the spiritual darkness of the death of Jesus Christ. You see in this moment, it looks like for a brief second, it looks like Satan has won. Jesus Christ comes here claiming to be king of kings and a week later or less than a week later his lifeless body hangs on a cross and the world is dark. You know, weather, I don't know about you guys, weather affects my moods. Anybody else like that? On a sunny day, I'm happy. I love nice weather. Yesterday was the perfect day. I wish the rest of the year was just like yesterday. But on a cloudy, rainy day, it affects my mood. It, it makes me feel dreary. And, and what God is saying in this, when he, when he causes the sun to quit shining, he, he's given us a physical reminder of how big of a moment this is that Jesus Christ would die. Immediately after Jesus' death, it's, it's um, followed by an earthquake. The ground begins to shake, and we can't explain why. Something is broken in creation at the moment that Jesus gives his life on a cross. No other person in the history of the world has ever had their death marked by the sun ceasing to function in an earthquake. Don't miss the magnitude of what just happened here. This is not just a story. This is not just the death of an ordinary man. This is the universe and history changing before our eyes. The next thing that we see is at Jesus' crucifixion, point B, he chooses death. Listen to that. Jesus chooses death. 
In verse 46 here, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I give it to you. In another place, it, it records the death of Jesus Christ as, as saying, um, Jesus says, that he, or it says that Jesus gave up his spirit. This is not typical language. When it talks about Jesus dying on the cross, and the scripture talks about it, it points to his control over things. I commend, I give my spirit to you. I give up the ghosts. That's not typically how we talk about death. Death tends to be the thing that comes and grabs us when we don't want it. We can't control when our spirit leaves our body. We certainly can't keep it here longer than it's supposed to be. And proof of that is if we could keep our spirit here longer than God wanted for it, if we had control over that, we would live forever. For every other human being, death comes for us. But Jesus walked into death. He is in complete control of this. See, appearances can be deceiving. Because if you, if you beheld what happened at the cross, it looks like Jesus was murdered. It looks like Jesus was, was taken and captured and beaten and he bled to death on a cross and he could not have stayed alive. Jesus was in complete control the entire time. Death did not come to get him. Jesus walked into death. And as we look at that, why? Why would a man, why would a king, why would our Savior, who has complete control over life and death, why would he voluntarily walk into death? The, the answer is in the scripture here, point C, is that Jesus' crucifixion, separation, is destroyed. I, I love the crucifixion story because obviously it, it tells the story of my salvation. But I love what God does in the crucifixion story is he puts several powerful visuals into the story that give us a physical visual reminder of what Jesus Christ is doing spiritually. And one of those is found in the scriptures that we just read. And it simply says, the veil was torn. Now let me explain why that's important. In Jerusalem at this time, there was a temple. And this was the temple in which you worshiped God. There was only one temple. There were many tabernacles, but there was only one temple. This was the temple where they performed animal sacrifice, where animals gave their lives to shed blood to atone for the sins of the people. And in this temple, there was a place called the holy place. And inside of the holy place, there was a place called the holy of holies. Anytime you hear scripture say holy of holies or king of kings or lord of lords, that, that's basically saying, pay attention. This isn't just a holy place. This is the holiest of holy places. And inside that holy of holies was the physical, literal dwelling place of God. And around the Holy of Holies was this huge curtain of blue and purple and crimson and white thread, six inches thick. And within that holy place, that's where God dwelt. What that curtain represents, what that curtain was there for, is it separated God the Father in all of his perfection from you and me. It separated him from us. You couldn't go in there in your sinful state. You would die. As a matter of fact, one person was allowed to go into this room one time a year to bring a blood offering for the sins of, the, of God's people. One person and one person only. And when he went in, they tied a rope around his waist in case he died in the presence of God, they could drag his body out. God was separated from mankind because of our sin. Now let me be clear. We live in a world and we live in a Christian world where we're starting to believe that sin is not a big deal. You know, there's the big sins like killing people and stealing things, and we never do that. But a little sin of pride, not a big deal. A little gossip on Friday afternoon, not a big deal. Ignoring the needs of the hungry and the helpless, we tend to think it's not a big deal. 
But this story reminds us that our sin, every bit of it, big or small by our standards, is a big deal before God. See, God in his holiness and perfection could not be with us in our dirtiness and in our sinful nature. And he was separated. But at the moment Jesus died, that thick curtain, six inches thick, rips from top to bottom. It's almost like you can feel the excitement of God the Father as he bursts out of his separation. And he says, I am available and accessible to all because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The message here that he gives us is my wrath is quenched. My punishment is over. You can come to me. And we call this, we as Christians have the audacity to call this day Good Friday. The day that our Savior bled to death on a cross. Today he was beaten and bruised because of what you and I did. If that was me being beaten, it wouldn't have been a Good Friday. But it's a good Friday because our God loves us so much that this action of Jesus Christ gives us a way, gives us access to God where we no longer have to stand away from him, where we no longer have to await punishment and wrath, but where we can be called his children. See, this moment, this moment changed history. But this moment had a cost. I've often said to my wife, with anything that we do, I said, you have to understand, it doesn't matter what we do, it has a cost. We can go on vacation, it will cost money, which is fine. You make those choices every day, a cost-to-benefit ratio. Everything has a cost, including your ability to be saved, including your ability to have access to God, including your ability to have access to eternal life. It has a cost. And at the same exact moment where all of this exciting stuff is going on, the veil is being torn open, there is an earthquake, graves are being opened, that's recorded in another book, people are coming back to life. The cost of it is, is that Jesus Christ, or let me take that back, Jesus' lifeless body hangs on a cross. See, at the exact moment that we look at that all of this exciting stuff, I can be saved because of what happened in this story. The cost was a dead body of someone who knew no sin, who had never sinned, and lived to perfection. Read with me what they do with his body. Verses 50 through 56. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and the deeds of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went to, unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also, which came with him from Galilee, followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. So the story now introduces a man that you probably are not familiar with, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. What you need to know about Joseph is he was a true picture of what a believer should be. See, Joseph, it says that he was a counselor. That means he was colleagues with the men who plotted to murder Jesus. He was colleagues with the men who cried out, crucify him. But yet he stand, stood aside from those men. He waited on the kingdom of God. He was a believer in Jesus Christ. And he looks up at the cross and he looks at the cost of our salvation. And he goes to the judge of the area and he says, may I please take the body and bury it? 
See, at this time, when you were crucified, generally your body was left on the cross as a way of warding off other people, kind of, a, kind of an example of what will happen to you if you break the rules. But he goes and he begs, please let me bury this man who did nothing. And he did. And here's another one of those pictures uh, of what Jesus did on the cross. Joseph takes this broken, bloody body of Jesus would have had the skin ripped from it. I heard somebody say earlier this week, they basically filleted Jesus alive. He had holes in his hands and his feet where he had been hung on a cross. His ligaments and his joints would have been stretched and broken and ripped. And he takes this body of Jesus Christ, the one who died for you and me, and he takes it to his own tomb where they planned to lay Joseph when he died and they laid Jesus in Joseph's place. Do you see the significance of that? Do you see the significance of what's happening with Joseph? Not very far from here, there's a, a cemetery that all of my family is buried in, and God willing, they'll plant me there one day too. And in that cemetery, there's a little area that's just my family in there, and there's, and there's people there, people there who, who, who belong to my family who have already gone, and we've laid them to rest there. But the sobering part of that particular family plot is there are tombstones there of people who are still with us. I hate going to that part of the cemetery because it's a reminder that one day people I love will be laid there. It's their place of death. It's their place of end. It's the end of their journey. And Joseph takes his place of death, the place where they were supposed to lay his body, but in the place where Joseph's body was supposed to be laid, Jesus laid there. What does that say about what Christ did for us? If Jesus laid in Joseph's place, if he took his place of death, what he is communicating to us is not only did he take his place of death, he took his place in death. Joseph's, Joseph's, Joseph's death would not matter in the long run because of what Jesus did on the cross. This is the grand swap. This is what Jesus offers to us. His death in the place of mine. I don't have to spend eternity separated from God. I don't have to spend eternity living, being in death, I guess I should say, because Jesus did that for me. Your next take-home truth on your notes is Jesus' death takes the place of our death. And because of this, he can promise us eternal life. See, when you come to church and we talk about salvation and we talk about forgiveness and we talk about your place in heaven and eventually one day we will all die and Jesus will bring us back just the way he came back from the dead. When we talk about these things, it's not a magic trick that God is putting on. It's a swap that Jesus had to die in our place. And listen, if you are found in Christ, if you are a follower, if you are a believer in him, if you've accepted his salvation, you may die but it will only be temporary. Death for me, death for the believers in this room, is like a nap. Because one day we will be with Jesus and we will live forever and ever and ever just like him. These are the events of Friday. The Bible goes on to tell us that they went home and they began to prepare spices for the body. This would be their equivalent of embalming caring for the body of a loved one to lay it. The next day was Saturday. It was a Sabbath. You could not be around or touch a dead body, and you certainly couldn't be working in any way, so they weren't able to do anything. And on Sunday, they came to complete the burial process on the body of Jesus Christ, or so they thought. Read with me in Luke chapter 4. 
Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek you the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Amen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returned from the sepulchre, and told all the things unto the eleven and to the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the mother of Mary of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to be as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulchre, and stooping down, he beheld the linen cloths laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself at which, at which was come to pass. See, what we see here is what Jesus promised us on the cross. We see here the Easter story, the Resurrection Day story. Jesus had control over life and death. He had it when he was hanging on the cross and he chose to give up his life. He had control over life and death when his body laid on the tomb. And he has control over life and death when he rises from the tomb. See, Jesus conquered death. No other man in the history of the world has ever went into death and come back. Some people have been resuscitated, but nobody has come back of his own power back into life. Our next take-home truth is Jesus accepted death, but only temporarily. Jesus accepted death, but only temporarily. Now, I want to focus on this about this story. You know the story of Jesus being resurrected. You know how brutal it was when he was crucified. You know it was three days that he was in the ground. The question is, is how do we react to what happens? How do we apply this to our lives? As we go out of here today, in about 17 minutes, we're going to leave and we're going to go out into the world and we're going to continue to live our lives. How do we apply that to us? To answer that question, I want to look at how did the followers of Jesus at this time react? The answer is not very well. The women who went to the tomb, it says, they were perplexed. They were confused. As a matter of fact, they were so confused, they had to have this explained to them by the angels, which, by the way, isn't that grace? I love that these people, you know, they follow Jesus Christ. They think he is the Lord. They think he is the Messiah. And then they give up on him when he dies. And they handle his body just like everybody else. And then they get to the grave, and he's risen, and he told them he was going to rise, and they have no clue what to do with this information. And yet God sends angels to them to explain exactly what happened. He is not here. He is risen. See, as humans, we have these paradigms. That just means the way that we view the world, the way that we expect the world to work. There are certain things that everybody just expects to happen. The sun comes up in the morning, and it goes down at night. Right? The seasons come, and they come in a certain order. We do not expect to have spring, and then fall, then summer, and then winter. Well, let me take that back. We live in Arkansas, so actually, yes, we do. We do expect that. All in the same day, right? We have these beliefs about the way that the world should work and how it does work. And one of those things is when somebody dies, they stay dead. That was the expectation of the disciples, even though Jesus had told them differently. 
But Jesus flips all of our expectations of this world upside down. And I want you to remember that. If ever you read something in the Bible, if ever, ever you come to church and you hear something and you says, that's too good to be true. It can't be that easy to be saved, to just put my faith in Jesus Christ. I must do something to, to earn it. You don't have to do anything. If it sounds too good to be true, that's the way Jesus works. He, he, takes, he takes what we think and he flips it upside down. The women ever talking to the angel, Mary Magdalene is actually going to see Jesus. They go back and they tell the disciples, specifically the 11 apostles that are left and other believers who are gathered with them. And what are they met with? They're met with disbelief. It says they didn't believe them. It sounded like it was an idle tale. Like you guys are telling us a story. This is not a time to be joking, ladies. We don't know what to do because Jesus is dead. We're still mourning. Don't be joking about him walking around. They didn't believe them. Because in their mind, they had seen Jesus defeated, and they lost hope, and they sat there thinking, it's over. But they shouldn't have been. They shouldn't have been upset. They shouldn't have been scared. They shouldn't have wondered at what happened when the tomb was empty. You know why? Because Jesus told them exactly what was going to happen beforehand. Your next take-home truth is this, is that Jesus promised his resurrection. And sometimes he kind of masks that a little bit. Like he would, he would tell it, but he would tell it like in a riddle. For example, in Mark 12, they were asking Jesus, they were saying, uh, Jesus, uh, give us a sign that you are who you say you are, that you are the Son of God, that you are the Messiah. Can you make something appear or heal somebody here in front of us so that we can see it? And Jesus said, I will give you a sign that I am the Son of God. I will give you a sign that I am who I say I am. He said, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. See, Jonah was in the well for three days, and then he was spit out on the beach. Just like that, you will see me in the ground for three days, and I'll come back. Jesus gave him hints at it. In Mark 14, he talked about destroying the temple. He said, in three days, I will tear this temple down and I will build it back. Now, Jesus was not talking about physically tearing the temple down. What he was saying is, in three days, I will give my life and I will come back proving that I have the power of death and there will be no more need for a veil to separate you from God the Father. There will be no more need for animal sacrifices to atone for sin. I will have done it all by walking into death and defeating it. But if that's not enough, that's not enough, Jesus flat told them in plain words. This is Mark 8, 31. Speaking of Jesus, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days would rise again. You cannot be that much more clear than that. This was taught by Jesus so much, even the people who crucified him knew that he said he would rise again. Because they got together and they said, we know this man has spoke that he will rise again after we kill him. Let's put some guards in front of the tomb to keep him in there. That didn't work for him. But see, the disciples had been taught all of these things. The disciples had been taught all of these things, but didn't believe. As a matter of fact, only two disciples even went to investigate. The scripture here tells us Peter, in the Gospel of John, John tells us that he went there. John and Peter went running to the tomb. And if you like a little uh, humor in your scripture, John makes it very clear. I beat Peter. You know, that's the most human thing I've ever heard. I'm writing the word of God. I'm recording about the resurrection of Jesus. But let's remember who won the race to the tomb. That's John. They, they go investigate and they still don't know what to do with it. Now, let me ask you a question. 
how much do these disciples who walk in disbelief represent me and you? How many times does God promise us something and we doubt it? How many times do we look at the promises of Jesus Christ and we wonder, is that true? Is that real? Listen very carefully. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Jesus keeps his promises. Disciples forgot that. And I'll be honest with you, there are times when I forget that. And I think probably many people in this room have forgot that. But listen, when Jesus keeps this promise, this big promise, he promised to come back from the dead, I think we can trust him to keep his other promises. When I was about 18, uh, my truck broke down because I didn't change the oil enough. Not because it was a Dodge, because I didn't change the oil enough. And we had to take it to a mechanic to get it fixed. And uh, we took it up there, and I was broke. Dead broke, didn't have any money. And we went to go pick up the truck, and, and the mechanic said, that'll be $400. And I'm going, I ain't got $20. You're going to have to keep that truck, right? And my grandpa took me, and, and he was there, and he said, okay, here's what we'll do. Uh, we'll come back and bring you the money here in a month or so. And I'm sitting there going, Grandpa, that ain't how this works. He's not going to let you take off with this truck and hopes that you may pay him one day. But to my surprise, the mechanic said, yeah, bring it by whenever you want to. Six weeks, two months later, we go back by there with the money. My grandpa walks in and he says, he says, it took us a little longer to get the money together than I expected, but here's the money for the truck that you fixed two months ago. You know what that mechanic said? I wasn't worried about you bringing that money. I knew you would bring it. You know Why? Because when you have a character of truth and you've proven yourself to be truthful over and over and over again, people will believe you. Listen, Jesus in this story proves if he needed to, he didn't need to, but he proves his character of truth. He makes a promise to do something impossible and then he does it. If Jesus Christ can walk into death and come back on a promise, I believe we can accept all of his other promises as true. And here's what he promises us. Jesus Christ promises us for only the price of putting our faith in him, we can have eternal life. Jesus promises us that we can stand before God the Father in a moment of judgment and stand before him justified because of what Jesus did on the cross. He promises us a salvation, but he promises us he will come again. See, for 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he walks the earth. And at the end of that 40 days, he ascends into heaven. His disciples stood around him and physically watched him be gathered up into heaven. But before he leaves, this is the promise he gives to those disciples and to you and me. He says this, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Our next take-home truth is Jesus has promised to come back again. And Jesus taught on this quite often. Jesus loved to use a teaching technique called a parable. It's where he would use a story as a metaphor. He would explain a spiritual truth using earthly things you could understand. And five separate times, Jesus used a parable to teach about his second coming, about coming back after the resurrection and the ascension. And here's the key to all of those parables. You should be prepared for me to come back. One parable, Jesus tells it this way. He says, a master is leaving. We're to assume this master is a, a man of great wealth, a man over a household with many servants. And, and as this master goes, he pulls aside one of his servants and he gives him the job as head servant. Your job is to run things until I get back. Make sure everybody is fed. Make sure things are taken care of. When I come back, I want to see everything working well. 
And then Jesus presents two alternative endings to that story. In the first ending, the master comes back, and it's a surprise. But when he comes back, he finds that that servant has been working and doing exactly what he had been called to do. He is working and preparing for the master's return, knowing that he will come back, knowing that things need to be in order. And Jesus says, for this man, for this man, there will be great reward when his master returns. But the second ending isn't as good. In the second ending, the master is gone. And the longer he is gone, the head servant gets lazy. He begins to mistreat the other servants. He begins to embezzle money. He, he begins to party and be drunk all of the time. And then the master returns as a surprise. He says, and in that moment, because this man was not prepared, because he wasn't living prepared for my return, there will be punishment. Jesus uses the phrase that he uses exclusively to describe hell. He uses the phrase, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen, what the scripture teaches us today and what we do with this Easter story is we make sure and we ask ourselves, am I prepared for the king to come back again? Because those who are prepared, who are awaiting the king in faith and within salvation, this is the promises he makes to us. He promises, number one, he will return. Number one, two, he will receive us to himself who believe. And number three, we will be with him forever. But to those who are not prepared, those who live their life on their own, who go their own way, who spend no time thinking about the return of Christ, the return of the King, and, and how they should prepare for that. This is what he promises. He promises, once again, he will return, he will judge, and he will cast them away from him. See, the purpose of the Easter story today is God offers all of us those first promises that he'll receive us, that we'll go with him, and we'll be with him forever. Not because of anything we've done, but because Jesus did it for us. Our last take-home truth this morning is if Christ kept his promise to come back from the grave, we should live like we expect him to keep his promise to return. There's a song that we sing a lot of times at our, uh, what we call invitation time. Here we call it our response time. You know, just a time where we, we take what we've learned today and we pray over it. And maybe if we need to commit something to God, we do that. And it's called, Are You Ready? I love the way this song pleads with us to be ready for Christ's return. This is verses three and four. Listen, listen to it carefully. It says, if you spend your time in seeking after wealth and earthly fame, unrepentant, disbelieving in his holy, blessed name, if you live in worldly pleasures and the Lord of life deny, indignation, wrath, and anguish is your portion when you die. Now prepare to meet your maker. Choose today the better part. While you hear his earning, earnest pleading, oh, harden not your heart. Seek him while he may be found and call upon him while he's near, lest he laugh at your calamity and mock when comes your fear. This morning on Easter morning, I have one question for you. Brother Danny, Miss Glennie, if y'all want to come up here. The question is, are you ready? I'm so glad that you're here. We love each and every one of you. But being here does you no good. Coming to this building, owning a Bible does you no good. The only thing that prepares you for the return of the King is knowing Him as your Savior. And it's this simple. All He asks is that you put your faith in Him, that you trust Him with your soul. 
You can do that this morning. It is that simple. It is a free gift. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to dress a certain way. You don't have to act a certain way. Just put your faith in Him and allow Him to begin working on you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you will stand with me and others in this room one day before Jesus Christ and you will celebrate when you see Him. My King has returned. My King has come back to life and He lives forever and ever and I will live with Him. Today, you've got a choice. You can walk out of here ignoring him one more time, not prepared, and it may be too late. Or you can come to know him today, and I can tell you, ask anybody who knows him, you'll never regret it, not for a second.